0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, January 7th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, how do I know if I have a cold, the flu, or COVID-19? from the Associated Press, plus what we know about the symptoms and severity of Omicron from NPR News, and 10 Diet Mistakes and How to Avoid Them from WebMD, as well, additional articles, time permitting. Here's our first report. How do I know if I have a cold, the flu, or COVID-19? By Victoria Milko from the Associated Press. How do I know if I have a cold, the flu, or COVID-19? Experts say testing is the best way to determine what you have, since symptoms of the illnesses can overlap. The viruses that cause colds, the flu, and COVID-19 are spread the same way, through droplets from the nose and mouth of infected people. And they can all be spread before a person realizes they're infected. The time varies for when someone with any of the illnesses will start feeling sick. Some people infected with the coronavirus don't experience any symptoms, but it's still possible for them to spread it. Cough, fever, tiredness, and muscle aches are common to both the flu and COVID-19, says Kristen Coleman, an assistant research professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Symptoms specific to COVID-19 include the loss of taste or smell. Common colds, meanwhile, tend to be milder with symptoms including a stuffy nose and sore throat. Fevers are more common with the flu. Despite some false portrayals online, the viruses have not merged to create a new illness. But it's possible to get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, which some are calling A co-infection of any kind can be severe or worsen your symptoms altogether, says Coleman. If influenza cases continue to rise, we can expect to see more of these types of viral co-infections in the coming weeks or months, she said. With many similar symptoms caused by the three virus types, testing remains the best option to determine which one you may have. At-home tests for flu aren't as widely available as those for COVID-19, but some pharmacies offer testing for both viruses at the same time, Coleman notes. This can help doctors prescribe the right treatment. Laboratories might also be able to screen samples for various respiratory viruses, including common cold viruses. But most do not have the capacity to routinely do this, especially during a COVID-19 surge, Coleman says. Getting vaccinated helps reduce the spread of the viruses. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it is safe to get a flu and COVID-19 shot or booster at the same time. Up next, what we know about the symptoms and the severity of the Omicron variant, by Michaeline Duclef and Will Stone from NPR News. When it was discovered, Omicron alarmed scientists. The variant looked wildly different from earlier versions of the coronavirus, and it quickly became clear that these mutations gave Omicron an uncanny ability to sidestep our vaccines and spread very rapidly. But it has taken longer to untangle what, if anything, sets an Omicron illness apart from that of its predecessors. And most of all, does this variant cause less severe disease than the variants that have come before it? With infections at all-time highs in the U.S., the clinical picture is now coming together and starting to confirm what other countries have found. A typical case of Omicron not only presents slightly differently, but also likely carries a lower chance of getting seriously ill. Scientists at Case Western Reserve University have preliminary evidence that the risk of being admitted to the hospital or the intensive care unit during the Omicron surge in the U.S. is about half of the risk observed during the Delta surge, and this reflects what doctors across the country are now seeing firsthand with their patients. This is a pretty different surge, says Dr. Brendan Carr, Chair of Emergency Medicine for the Mount Sinai Health System, where the emergency rooms are busier than ever, but many of the COVID-19 patients are not sick enough to be admitted. But as with any variant of SARS-CoV-2, your absolute risk depends on many factors, including whether you're vaccinated and boosted, your age, your overall health, and your economic situation. In the older age group, it's still a nasty disease, even if it's less nasty than the Delta variant, says Dr. Pamela Davis, who's a pulmonologist at Case Western Reserve University and a senior author on the new study. You don't get off scot-free just because you happen to be infected in the time of Omicron, she says. While Omicron does appear to be less severe compared to Delta, especially in those vaccinated, it does not mean it should be categorized as mild, said the World Health Organization's Director General, Tedros Ahanam Gebresis this week. Just like previous variants, Omicron is hospitalizing people and it is killing people, he said. Indeed, hospitalizations across the U.S. now stand at more than 126,000 and more than one in every four ICU beds is filled with a COVID-19 patient, according to the latest data from the Department of Health and Human Services. When you get sick with Omicron, What are the symptoms? What those hospital numbers don't tell us is what a typical case looks like. As with previous variants, the vast majority of people infected with Omicron have a mix of symptoms that resolve relatively quickly and don't require hospital care. And doctors are finding many of these cases tend to look like an ordinary upper respiratory infection. In other words, what you think of as the common cold. It's mostly that runny nose, sore throat, and nasal congestion, says Dr. John Vanchier, the associated director of the Center for Emerging Viral Threats at LSU Health Shreveport. The cough is milder than previous variants, if there's any cough at all, and fever seems to be a little less common, he said. This fits with early data from the UK showing that fever and cough are not as prevalent with Omicron cases there, and that the five top symptoms are runny nose, headache, fatigue, sneezing, and sore throat. With Omicron, the symptoms also come on more quickly once you're infected. Several studies have found that the incubation period, the time it takes to develop symptoms after being exposed, is about three days. In contrast, Delta took about four days, and the original variant took more than five. Another difference doctors are noticing, loss of smell and taste, considered a telltale sign of COVID-19, is not nearly as common with Omicron infections, and fewer patients have symptoms related to lower respiratory problems, such as shortness of breath, says Vanchier, including older patients. At the same time, it appears, anecdotally at least, that certain symptoms show up more with Omicron than they did with Delta. Three that have gained attention are nausea, night sweats, and lower back pain. But it's very possible that doctors and patients are simply paying more attention to these symptoms than they did with earlier variants, says Dr. Scott Roberts, an assistant professor of infectious diseases at the Yale School of Medicine. A lot of this is probably magnifying these symptoms under a microscope instead of clear changes, he says. Omicron versus Delta are really more similar than they are different, he says. And just like earlier variants, Omicron can't be defined as causing only a narrow group of symptoms. As at earlier stages in the pandemic, many patients are still having some combination of fever, gastrointestinal problems, aches and pains, brain fog, weakness, and less often, trouble breathing, says Mount Sinai's Carr. Omicron can present in a myriad of different ways, he says. It's also still not clear how much vaccines and prior infections are responsible for some of these early clinical impressions that Omicron is causing a milder constellation of symptoms, says Dr. Daniel Griffin, who's chief of infectious diseases at ProHealth in New York and an instructor at Columbia University. It just seems that people who have been vaccinated ahead of time are getting much milder symptoms across the board, he says. This was the case even before Omicron. People who had breakthrough infections tended to have fewer symptoms and milder ones than those who were unvaccinated. So if I do get Omicron, what's my risk of getting very sick? With SARS-CoV-2, the big danger is that a mild illness will turn into a life-threatening one. Although that could definitely still happen with Omicron, the risk appears to be lower than it was with Delta. A study published online on January 2 provides some of the first compelling evidence from the U.S. that the chance of ending up in the hospital is lower with Omicron compared with the Delta variant. Scientists at Case Western Reserve University analyzed health records for more than half a million people infected with SARS-CoV-2 across the country, including 14,000 people possibly infected with Omicron from December 15th to 24th, after the variant became dominant. In this period, we still have Delta circulating in the community, but you're pushing more and more and more toward the Omicron variant, says Davis, who contributed to the study. Then, the researchers looked to see if there was a difference between people infected during the end of the Delta wave and those infected during the early stage of the Omicron wave. The difference was huge, said data scientist Rong Zhu, who led the study and is also at Case Western Reserve University. We didn't need to do any complicated statistics to see the difference, Zhu said. Zhu and her colleagues found that the risk of needing to go to the ER dropped from about 15% during the Delta surge to 5% during the early Omicron surge, about a 70% decrease, and the risk of being hospitalized dropped from 4% to 2% or by about 50%. If a person did end up in the hospital, The person's risk of being admitted to the ICU or being put on a ventilator also decreased substantially at the end of December compared with during the Delta surge. Specifically, the risk of being admitted to the ICU fell from 0.8% to 0.4% or by 50%, and the chance of being put on a ventilator fell from 0.4% to 0.1%. This lower risk with Omicron is also consistent with what scientists have observed in South Africa and the United Kingdom. Zhu and her team estimate that, in their study, about 60% of the people were vaccinated. So, some of this lower risk could be because of vaccination. But the data altogether suggests that there is a reduced risk for hospitalization with the Omicron variant compared with the Delta variant. In particular, Zhu and her team observed a similar reduction in risk across all age groups, including children under age 5 who are not eligible for vaccination and children ages 5 to 15 who may have been vaccinated but haven't been boosted. That consistency, Zhu says, suggests that the reduction in severity is due in part to something inherent with Omicron itself and not simply because of changes in vaccination status. So this is really something that's different between Omicron and Delta, Zhu says. That all said, this reduction in risk doesn't mean Omicron will be mild for everyone. For people who are at high risk for severe disease, such as older people or those with underlying health issues, the chance of being hospitalized is still quite significant. For example, if you're over age 65, your risk of being hospitalized with COVID-19 is still 5% with the Omicron variant, which means one in 20 people infected in this age group will end up in the hospital. By contrast with the original version of the virus, the rate was one in 10. The risk is not zero, says Zhu's colleague Davis, speaking of Omicron. Many people are still going to be admitted to the ICU, and some people are still going to need to have mechanical ventilation, she says. That's why, she says, everyone should be vaccinated and boosted, as with previous variants, being vaccinated greatly protects you from severe disease with Omicron. A study from the UK government published last week found that 3 doses of vaccine cuts the risk of hospitalization due to Omicron by about 80% compared with the person who is not vaccinated at all. If you do end up at the hospital, how bad is it? Even though early data shows that Omicron is milder than Delta, Many hospitals are packed because the sheer number of people getting infected is enormous. And doctors are finding a key difference among their patients who are ending up in the ER or being admitted. Many are neither struggling to breathe nor dealing with perilously low oxygen levels. Those two conditions were a hallmark of the first disease and of Delta, and not nearly as prominent in Omicron, says Mount Sinai's Carr. In the past, it was basically a given that a severe case of COVID-19 would wreak havoc on the lungs, at times leading to pneumonia and uncontrolled inflammation. But this apparent change in the disease, that a severe infection in the lungs doesn't seem as common, means fewer people need supplemental oxygen or intubation. They're not short of breath, and really, the lungs are okay, says Roberts of Yale. These observations also line up with lab research that shows Omicron does not replicate in lung tissue as well as Delta. Many of the patients who are being hospitalized often have some underlying health condition or they're older and more vulnerable to a viral infection. What we're seeing is something really tips these patients over the edge, says Roberts. For example, an Omicron infection may lead to complications of an existing condition, such as diabetes or heart failure. But Robert says it's still quite rare for people who were vaccinated and boosted to get seriously ill from Omicron. About 80% of the patients at Yale New Haven Hospital are unvaccinated. And among those who are vaccinated, almost all have not received a booster shot. While it's welcome news that Omicron is easier on the lungs, ProHealth's Griffin says it's not that way for some of his patients. And among unvaccinated people, he says, an Omicron infection can feel like the same unforgiving disease to him. If we have a patient who's younger, if we have a patient who's vaccinated, if we have a patient who recently recovered from Delta, we're tending to see very mild disease with Omicron, says Griffin. But people who are fresh with no pre-existing immunity, it's hard to see that the virus is milder, he says. Up next, 10 diet mistakes and how to avoid them, from WebMD. These errors can affect your weight. If your favorite pair of jeans won't fit, the scale seems stuck, or your weight drops off only to bounce back up, there's a chance you could be making one of these 10 weight loss mistakes. Relying on crash diets. Determined to lose 10 pounds fast, you turn to a crash diet. Perhaps your plan calls for nothing but grapefruit or cabbage soup each day. You slash your daily calories to fewer than 1,000, and sure enough, the pounds melt away. But when you eat so few calories, you train your metabolism to slow down. Once the diet is over, you have a body that burns calories more slowly, and you usually regain the weight skipping breakfast. Skipping breakfast seems like a simple way to cut calories, but it can make you hungry the rest of the day. This may lead to unplanned snacking at work and eating a supersized portion at lunch, making calorie counts sore. But breakfasts that are high in protein and fiber can curb hunger throughout the day. In fact, studies show people who eat breakfast every morning are more likely to maintain a healthy weight. Losing track of your snacks. Maybe you count calories at every meal, but what about all those nibbles in between? There's the bag of pretzels at your desk, the little slice of cake at a party, the taste of your son's ice cream cone. All of this mindless munching adds up and could sabotage an otherwise well-planned diet. If you're serious about counting calories, you may want to use your smartphone or a notebook to keep track of each bite. Not snacking at all. While mindless snacking can pad your waistline, thoughtful snacking may do just the opposite. People who eat several small meals and snacks a day are more likely to control hunger and lose weight. Snacking helps keep your metabolism in high gear, especially if the snacks are protein-rich. Having a few nuts is a good, high-protein choice, and research suggests people who snack on nuts tend to be slimmer than those who don't. LOADING UP ON LOW-FAT Low-fat products can play an important role in your diet. Just remember that low-fat isn't the same as low-calorie, and it's not a license to take second and third helpings. If you pile your plate with low-fat cake, you may end up eating more calories than if you had a smaller slice of regular cake. The best way to know how much fat, sugar, and calories you're getting is to check the nutrition label sipping too many calories when counting calories many of us tend to overlook what's in our drinks this is a big mistake when you consider that some fancy coffees and alcoholic beverages have more than 500 calories even the calories in fruit juice and soda can add up quickly drinking too little water this is one of the simplest diet mistakes to fix water is essential for burning calories If you let yourself get dehydrated, your metabolism drags, and that means slower weight loss. So try adding a glass of water to every meal and snack. Ditching dairy. Full-fat milk, cheese, and ice cream are taboo for many dieters, but ditching dairy foods may be counterproductive. Some research suggests the body burns more fat when it gets enough calcium and produces more fat when it's calcium-deprived. Calcium supplements do not appear to yield the same benefits, so dairy may have other things going for it too. Stick to non fat or low fat dairy options. Going drive through too often. The drive through is convenient after a hectic day, and you can always order the salad or other healthier option. But once you're there, can you resist that milkshake or other treat? And if you allow yourself the ease of fast food once, it could become a habit. According to one long-term study, people who ate fast food more than twice a week gained 10 more pounds than those who had it less than once a week. Setting unrealistic goals Telling yourself you'll lose 20 pounds your first week is probably setting yourself up for failure. If you know you won't be able to do it, you may never start your diet in the first place. If you diet and lose 5 pounds in a week, Instead of celebrating, you may feel discouraged that you didn't reach your goal. A realistic goal is vital to successful dieting. If you're not sure what your goal should be, talk to a dietitian. Up next, Time to Upgrade by Corey Ollendorf from the Daily Valet. This is an excerpt. The Mayo Clinic this week began requiring all patients and visitors to wear medical-grade masks, N95 or KN95s. If you really want no exposure, you have to wear the right type of mask, one infectious disease specialist told the Wall Street Journal. The current CDC guidance still suggests doubling up your simple cloth mask, but viral experts tell NPR that just okay isn't good enough. While N95 masks are still sometimes hard to find or expensive, the more affordable KN95 KF94, and FFP2 masks are just as effective. They're simply certified in China, South Korea, and Europe, respectively. Unlike cloth masks, these are all made out of material with an electrostatic charge, which actually pulls these particles in as they're floating around and prevents you from inhaling them. And that's key. If you don't inhale virus particles, they can't multiply in your respiratory tract. The World Health Organization said this week that a record 9.5 million COVID cases were tallied over the last week as the Omicron variant of the coronavirus swept the planet. That's a 71 percent increase that the U.N. health agency likened to a tsunami. Yes, it may be less severe, but it is not mild. It will take 25 hours for an infectious dose of COVID-19 to transmit between people wearing non-fit tested N95 respirators. If they're using tightly sealed N95s where only 1% of particles enter the face piece, they will have 2,500 hours of protection. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.